The U.S. is staring down perhaps its most well-telegraphed recession in history, but all the details are still up for debate. Here's what matters. Live from New York City, I'm Lauren Goodwin, and this is Market Matters from New York Life Investments. In this podcast, we bring you the best insights from across the New York Life Investments platform because we believe that by sharing perspectives and engaging with you, our listeners, we can all become better investors. Welcome, everyone. It's the week of June 12th, 2023, and it's a great start to our week because I have both Julia Herman and Michael Legalbo back with me today. Last week, we discussed the factors that, in our view, will impact the next decade of investing. But when it comes to the near term, the next six to 12 months of investing, the determining factors look a little different. And that's what we want to discuss with you all today, our updated views in our mid-year outlook, which will be released in written form shortly. Ready, team? Ready. This is actually great timing because a lot of what we want to discuss today relates closely to two exciting economic events this week, the release of May inflation on Tuesday and the Fed's meeting on Wednesday. So let's do this. Yes, it does mean some good timing. Our mid-year outlook is in many ways a step-by-step guide to what we believe are late economic cycle dynamics, meaning those market tendencies as economic growth slows. There are three key areas where we're offering guidance on how we expect a recession to shape up in the coming months. First, investors need to understand the economic cycle, which we will argue resembles a domino effect. Second, when it comes to recession, economic outcomes are not the same thing as market outcomes, namely that even a mild recession could point to another leg down in the market, so we want to be mindful of that. And finally, as you noted, Julia, monetary policy is a huge determinant of the length and severity of the cycle. And even though the Fed might not be done hiking yet, investors are eagerly awaiting interest rate easing cycles. We'll share our outlook for what we might see ahead in terms of policy support. And you know, we're always going to wrap up our discussion with what it means for your portfolios. All right. With that, Mike, we'll start with you. Tell us why we're using dominoes as a metaphor to explain the economic cycle. Absolutely. From an economist's vantage point, once the Fed starts raising interest rates, an economic slowdown resembles a domino effect in which specific economic data slows in a sequence that is more or less standard across business cycles. First, we typically see a slowdown in interest rate sensitive sectors, such as housing, then manufacturing, next services decelerate. And now this is where we are now. Corporate earnings and profit margins are slowing, and we're starting to see cracks in the final portion of the slowdown, the consumer sector and the labor market. Most notably, the labor market is the final domino to fall. It's the most lagging indicator of where we are in the cycle. Okay, so what you're saying is that the economic cycle is what it is. Even if there are factors that are different, the way that the economy tends to turn looks similar each time. But we have to acknowledge that this time the downturn has been really slow, which is a good thing, but it's certainly confusing for economists and investors. Why is it that the economy has been changing so slowly? This time around, we have unique forces pushing and pulling on those dominoes, accelerating and delaying the recession timeline all at once. Accelerating the downturn, as always, is tight monetary policy. 
That's true, but we're still seeing some idiosyncrasies or specific factors within what you're describing with respect to monetary policy. So the Fed has been tightening policy faster than in most economic cycles in the past, but we've had some bank failures as well, prompting an expectation for maybe even further tightening in the real economy via lending conditions. Yes, and I'd also say that political risk isn't helping, though the debt ceiling debacle was fortunately finally resolved. Okay, so these are the factors that have been toppling the dominoes more quickly. But again, the cycle's moving pretty slowly. So what's making that happen? A range of household and business supports. We've talked about how resilient the consumer has been, and there are two pillars of support there. First, there are those good old excess savings from the pandemic. Estimates of what's remaining do vary meaningfully, but our estimate is that households are sitting on roughly $800 billion more than they would have otherwise. And of course, even though the labor market is a lagging indicator, the jobs market is particularly strong, and there are four more job openings than there are people looking for jobs at the national level. What about on the corporate side, then? What's helping businesses stay resilient? Businesses have been hoarding two things, cash and labor, and the first enables the second. We looked at the very long-term history since 1945 of companies' cash balances, and they are far higher than their historic averages. This cash buffer has helped support earnings, and I'd imagine it's helped companies hold on to headcount on aggregate. I love the way you say that. Companies are hoarding two things, cash and labor. So these factors are offsetting each other to a certain extent, right? And so the timing of a recession or an economic slowdown is uncertain. But as our regular listeners will know, our team perceives a hard landing or a recession, even if it's a mild recession, as essentially inevitable. Okay, so these factors, these positives and negatives about the economic cycle are offsetting each other to a certain extent. So the timing is still uncertain, but regular listeners to our program will know that our team perceives a hard landing or a recession, even if it's a mild recession, as essentially inevitable. And we know that the indicators of the, the dominoes, et cetera, that we're watching are starting to signal that that recession might be getting closer. Now, when the recession hits, there's been just as much debate about the potential severity of that recession than there has been about the timing, like when it will come. And that takes us to the second portion of our recession guide. And I'm now going to pivot my virtual chair to Julia. We've been saying that our base case is a mild recession, and we're sticking to that base case with some added downside probability. We can probably imagine that that would be associated with less negative economic outcomes than would be the case if we thought a recession was going to be more severe. But I think the big money question is, does that mean mild recession investors should be bullish or more bullish on the markets, namely equity markets? My, my short answer is no, it's not necessarily signaling bullish market outcomes. But since there are investment outcomes at stake, I will elaborate on that. We've discussed before how recession, though ugly, serves an important purpose, and that purpose is to cleanse imbalances like debt and inflation out of the economy. We know we need to solve the inflation problem, and we know that we most likely need a recession to do it. So the first base risk to both economic and market outcomes I want to highlight is that a mild recession doesn't necessarily solve the inflation problem. I want to come back to that, the idea that recessions can actually help solve some problems rather than just create them. But if we put inflation aside and think purely in terms of the market, your answer doesn't change? 
So we looked back on the historic American experience of recessions, and we found that regardless of severity, the data suggests that from current levels, we have both a price and an earnings correction to be seen yet in the S&P 500 index. Even if valuations, as measured by price-to-earnings or P.E. ratios, in the S&P 500 remained stable, then the median historical 21% drop in earnings per share would likely result in a market correction of about 15 to 20% from current levels. So another leg down from here. And frankly, I don't think we can rely on valuations staying where they are. I think the huge run-up that we've seen in the valuations and price growth of growth and AI-related names could create some additional potential downside in a recession scenario. It's tough to hear given the market volatility we already saw in 2022, but I think that's a really important point for investors that the cause of market volatility in 2022 was primarily interest rates moving higher. That doesn't mean that we've seen the impact already of economic growth moving lower. That's what we're likely, at least in our perspective, to see ahead. So turning back then to Michael, is the market going to give any indication to investors or any sort of warning about when this next leg down, if it comes, is going to come? Not if history is anything to go by. Looking at the last 16 recessions, excluding the COVID recession, markets have not anticipated recessions by seeing negative price actions leading up to when the start of the recession is which we should remember is done in hindsight, often after growth has contracted for two quarters. We found that one to two quarters into the recession, the market recovers and does so ahead of the real economy. But we don't see any signaling power in the market heading towards recession. And the market leading the economy out of recession is one of the reasons why we're always reminding investors to stay invested and not miss that recovery if and when it comes. But okay, moving on to the third portion of our step-by-step recession guide, when the Fed might cut rates and help the economy emerge from the recession that we'd expect. I'm going to cover this and Julia's going to flip the mic around on me. All right. I wish I could do a good evil laugh to show how powerful I feel, but instead I will ask, the market is chomping at the bit for policy support or interest rate cuts. Do you think that the Fed will or should cut interest rates in the near future? Not in the near term. And I'd hazard to say throughout the year, And that's because of exactly what we were discussing earlier when you said that a recession is actually necessary to squash inflation and squash it sustainably. Inflation isn't just a nuisance for households. It's part of the Fed's mandate. And returning inflation to its 2% target is no joke. No joke indeed. Tell us more about how recession can help the Fed get back to that 2% mandate and what that suggests about the future of interest rate cuts. Well, the Fed has been very transparent with us on at least one thing, which is that when inflation is high, the economy doesn't work well for anybody. And so if the Fed wants to return inflation to normal, it needs to see inflation not only go closer to its target of around 2%, but also to keep inflation expectations low and anchored. Fortunately, that second condition has been achieved, but to durably push price growth down, we might need not just a shallow recession, but a more severe recession. And that may suggest that the Fed prematurely cutting interest rates would not only not be consistent with that mandate, but might actually be bad news for the economy and markets, signaling that more hiking would have to come later. Okay, so price stability is a tough mandate to achieve. And it's not the Fed's only mandate. They also have that elusive level of full employment to maintain. And we're currently in what I'd probably call a moderate wage price spiral where wage growth is worsening inflation. Do we need a recession to fix that too? 
you're right to highlight that the Fed's mandates can often be in conflict. And what's happened in this cycle is that the Fed overshot its full employment mandate that's been pushing wages higher and contributing to higher inflation. So we've gone beyond the ideal level of unemployment reduction and now need to see the job markets cool meaningfully. What are you going to be looking for to measure that cooling of the labor market? The first thing is wage gains. Because employment costs contribute so meaningfully to inflation costs over time, we need to see wage gains that are commensurate with the Fed's long-term 2% inflation mandate. And to get there, we're likely going to have to see the unemployment rate rise. And so if I was making a checklist, as we did in our outlook for the Fed, what we would expect to see before we'd see Fed rate cuts, I'd probably expect the unemployment rate to be at least 4%, but frankly, probably higher. When we talk about the labor market weakening, recession talk begins to feel very real for investors. So with that, I'll turn the mic back over to you, Lauren, so that we can talk about what all of this means for portfolio positioning. That brings us to our portfolio pause, a segment of the program where we share an investment idea. And as Julia said, we want to share our top conviction investment ideas, given everything we've discussed today, the uncertain timing and severity of recession and when policy support might help pull us out of it. We've been noticing a fair amount of what I'd call cash paralysis, or investors being less active in their portfolio decisions because it feels relatively comfortable to sit tight in the money market, collecting a fair amount of yield on the sidelines. But we caution against sitting out entirely. And I think the price action in growth and AI over the past few weeks is a lesson learned in how investors can miss out with cash. Another reason we don't want investors to miss out is because we see several ways that investors can adapt to this economic cycle without making wild swings in their allocation. We also see, as we discussed last week, a lot of more structural shifts. And even though positioning for these trends isn't necessarily immediate, the volatility associated with a market downturn can create price action that generates some very interesting buying opportunities. All right, that's a lot of different factors to consider and tie together. So let's start with how investors can adapt to the economic cycle with positioning that could also carry through as recession timing and severity expectations shift. I'll take the fixed income side here. Our guiding principle here is that not all duration or interest rate risk is created equal. The U.S. Treasury curve is still deeply inverted, which disincentivizes adding duration there. Taxable municipal or muni bonds, however, do reward longer duration with higher yields. Added potential benefits here are infrastructure exposure and diversified credit profiles. When it comes to equity, adding international exposure can help investors avoid home country bias in terms of portfolio weights, but also gain access to different stages of the economic cycle in Europe, Japan, and elsewhere. On style, we continue to like the quality of value, but also see opportunities to add profitable tech. Now, as Michael said, volatility can create buying opportunities where investors can consider to add the more structural drivers of investment return that we've discussed before. And we're excited about the newfound dynamism in the bond market, restoring more of the portfolio balance that had been missing in the past decade when rates were low. Considering rebalancing towards a structurally higher bond allocation to create income can be especially beneficial for investors that are closer to retirement. Let me elaborate on that bond story. We also like high yield bonds on a structural basis, given that there's been an improvement in their credit quality over time on aggregate, but this can be a volatile space in a downturn. So rather than playing tactically here, many investors could benefit from allocating a high yield sleeve within a bond allocation that can also help enhance that income generation potential. And in both equities and fixed income, infrastructure exposure can be a great way to gain access 
to real investments through public markets and harness some of those megatrends we discussed last week, including digital infrastructure, green and brown energy, and communications. This can also be a strategy to fill in gaps for international exposure. So many amazing ideas shared today from the economic, market, and tangible investment perspective. I really appreciate what you both are saying. For our listeners, if you'd like to hear more about these ideas or specifically read more about these ideas, you can find our mid-year outlook soon at newyorklifeinvestments.com slash insights. Michael and Julia, thank you so much for joining me. Always glad to be here. Thanks. Coming up next, we'll have a very special guest joining us to talk about infrastructure investing and to make more tangible some of the long-term investment themes we've been describing on the program. But that's it for today. We'll be back next week for more Market Matters. In the meantime, please remember to give us a like, follow, or review wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have a question or topic of interest, reach out to us on LinkedIn. You can also follow our views again at newyorklifeinvestments.com slash insights. Until then, I'm Lauren Goodwin. See you next time. Our podcast is produced by Milo Benamats and our music was composed by the fabulous Zach Young. I will now read our disclosures from compliance. The S&P 500 index measures the performance of 500 U.S. listed at large cap companies. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, which may vary. All investments are subject to market risk and will fluctuate in value. This material represents an assessment of the market environment at a specific date, is subject to change, and is not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. This information should not be relied upon by the reader as research or investment advice regarding the funds or any issuer or security in particular. The strategies discussed are strictly for illustrative and educational purposes and are not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. There's no guarantee that any strategies discussed will be effective. This material contains general information only and does not take into account an individual's financial circumstances. This information should not be relied upon as a primary basis for an investment decision. Rather, an assessment should be made as to whether the information is appropriate in individual circumstances and consideration should be given to talking to a financial advisor before making an investment decision. New York Life Investments is both a service mark and the common trade name of certain investment advisors affiliated with New York Life Insurance Company. Securities are distributed by Nylife Distributors, LLC, 30 Hudson Street, Jersey City, New Jersey, 07302, a wholly owned subsidiary of New York Life Insurance Company. Nylife Distributors, LLC is a member of FINRA SIPC.